0: Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and today with me I have Dr. Aaron Horschig, better known as Squat University. Uh, This is like literally the squat king. He is the most well-known squat expert. He is a physical therapist and a strength coach slash enthusiast. He's an athlete himself. Um, He's one of the guys, uh, the good guys in the industry that is taking – physical therapy to a place of athletic performance and strength. And I think it's really important because this is where evidence-based anything actually happens, right? This is where people are actually looking at injuries and fixing things on the PT side, but they're doing it in a way that actually applies to what we're doing in the gym as athletes, as gym enthusiasts, as people who want to lift weights, get stronger, lose weight, whatever it may be. And he does a really, really good job of this. Uh, He puts out an unbelievable amount of free content. So you can check out his Instagram squat underscore university. He has 1.9 million followers just to paint a picture of how well known he is for his craft. He has two books, both of which I own. First one is the squat Bible. And his latest one is rebuilding Milo, which is literally like the encyclopedia for lifters to learn how to move better, practice mobility and prevent or rehab injuries, Um, both of which are on Amazon. And I'm going to link in the show notes as well as his content. Uh, But this guy's everywhere. I mean, you can check out his podcast, his YouTube, his Instagram, all titled as Squat University, his blog. He puts out so much great content just on being a better lifter and how to move better to avoid injuries or recover from injuries. So you can continue to lift Get stronger and be a better lifter. So I think you guys are going to really, really enjoy this podcast because we hit home on a couple uh, more well-known and basic topics, but dive a little bit deeper into why these are so important, as well into some side topics that are a little more advanced, but once again, extremely helpful. So you should come out of this podcast with enough information to immediately improve your warm-up, improve your squatting, improve your rehab, improve your training—like really just improve yourself as a movement. Uh, or as a human being who is trying to accomplish better movement, really. So I'm excited for this one. I've been waiting a long time to get him on, and I'm excited for you guys to hear it. And without any further ado, let's talk to Squat University himself, Dr. Aaron Horshig. All right. So I, first and foremost, I don't want to butcher this publicly because I do that often. Dr. Aaron Horshig. You got it. Perfect. I love when I get it right. It's so tough,
1: it's a tough last name.
0: I, it is. It is. Uh, but man, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. I've been following your stuff forever. And uh, thanks. One of, the, one of the things I want to say first that I appreciate a lot is some of the youth stuff you put out there. And that actually would be a really good question I didn't have on topic today, but I would love to cover. But um, I think there's just so many people who say kids shouldn't lift, kids shouldn't squat stuff. But you share some of the coolest videos of impressive weightlifters that are like 12 and below. It's just super, super cool. So um, I love that, man. And I appreciate what you're doing from an education perspective. I mean, you have a massive following. Um, I've sent your mcgill big three article that you've had on there for probably years now i mean it's it's been there for a minute um i've sent that to so many people who ask me questions like low back questions Mm -hmm. where i'm not that expert in that we primarily do nutrition with people Mm -hmm. but i'm like man read this article sounds simple but just follow this so we're gonna cover that today too but um but again i just want to thank you because you put out so much free content it's amazing and it's helping a ton of people so thank you for coming on the show
1: yeah, I'm honored to come on the show, and I'm uh, excited to jump into our conversation today.
0: Yeah, so for the people listening, uh, let's let's first dive into your story a little bit. Can you just give us, obviously, an intro of, of who you are and why you do what you do today?
1: Yeah, so basically, I'm a physical therapist slash strength and conditioning nerd. It's a, the perfect blend of that. Um, growing up, I was always involved in almost any sport you can think of. And by the time I got to college, it was time to sort of choose what I wanted to try to continue pursuing. And I ended up finding the Olympic weightlifting team at Truman State University and just fell in love with that. And also understanding the idea, almost every single person that walks into the weight room always has some sort of ache and pain. You know, if your goal is to lift maximum weights, you're never feeling 100% healthy all the time. So um, I found that very quickly. And in trying to fix my own injuries, found out how grateful I was when I could find a tip of advice for how to, you know, get back on the path of lifting heavy weights and feeling good. So I wanted to sort of pursue that in my own future career goals of trying to blend the, the two professions of strength, conditioning, weightlifting, powerlifting, CrossFit, and also physical therapy. I found there was sort of that gap within the physical therapy profession where there was a lot of people that were trying to help athletes, especially, you know, your, your football, your baseball, your basketball. There's a lot of people already in that lane, but there wasn't really anyone talking to uh, the strength athlete, particularly those who love going into the weight room and lifting some heavy weights. So I felt like there was that, that niche that could be explored a little bit further. And First and foremost, before I ever became a physical therapist and graduated with my doctorate, I was a strength nerd. You know, I was that kid who loved being in the weight room. I was always reading journal strength conditioning research in the back of classes. You know, I competed in Olympic weightlifting for over 11 years before I finally decided to take a step back from that just so I could put more time into creating content for every single person. But for those out there that don't know of the content that I create, I try to create free content on every single social media platform every single day that is designed to help you lift with better technique, move better in the gym and outside of the gym. I always say decrease your body's aches and pains and reach your true athletic potential. A lot of that comes down to moving well first before we start lifting big weights. And unfortunately, today in the way in which we approach the gym is always how much do you lift before how well do you lift and I think when we can conceptually rearrange those priorities and move well first it leads us to not only have a platform to reach even greater potential performance wise but it also breeds longevity and that's really I think the missing piece that so many people have not found for such a long time. You know, every single person that's listening to this podcast who's been in the gym, first and foremost, has felt injuries in small ones, you know, usually not traumatic injuries, small things from time to time. You know, your right elbow aches a little bit, your back becomes a little sore, your right knee aches and pains whenever you're doing some squats. And it's these small injuries, you know, aches and pains that sort of add up over time. And a lot of times it comes down to how well we're moving in the types of loads we're, we're using. And I wanted to be that person that could create that content, that could speak to the individual, not down to the individual. Too often today, I think we find these people who are extremely smart, no doubt, but they don't understand how to talk to people. They don't understand how to get on that level with them and create content and speak to them in a way that can actually empower the individual to take control to understand the problem so that then they can be the one to fix it. I heard a quote one time from Callie Starrett who I'm sure some some of your lifters or some of your listeners know and he said, you shouldn't need to call an electrician in order to change a light bulb in your house. And I think that goes along the lines of the same way in which we should approach the gym in small aches and pains that you get throughout the day and throughout your, your training. You should have the knowledge, the wherewithal to be able to take the first crack at addressing a lot of these issues. And I wanted to be able to create that content in that straightforward manner, speaking to the individual, not down to the individual, so that you could be the one to take the first crack at fixing that achy knee, at working on that hip that just doesn't feel well at fixing the the back that rounds continuously when you deadlift no matter how hard you try. Again, with the end goal of helping you move better, decrease aches and pains, and reach your true athletic performance. And that's what Squat University started as. Uh, it was my outreach uh, starting in 2015, and I've been creating content uh, every single day since then. I guess it's been over six years now, uh, going on seven.
0: I love that, man. And, and that's a good – it's cool because i mean one your your platforms are big now right i'm sure you got millions of downloads on your podcast you have a great podcast uh, millions of followers on instagram so it's reaching a ton of people and it's cool that you said you know 7 years because i think people forget it's a, a gradual climb of of creating free content by the way over Man, that's and that's so true
1: so many people nowadays and this is our our social media world mm-hmm. for any creator out there everyone wants to go viral i'll tell you this i haven't had and i don't want to have that viral hit. I mean, I have things now people will look at it and be like, oh well this this post had you know 15,000 comments or something like that. yeah, the, that looks viral nowadays, but you have to understand I've been putting out content every single day, more than one time a day for seven years and that's when you go viral, I think it messes with people's heads that they think that, They have to continuously try to hit that or Mm -hmm. make something crazy or do something crazy in order to get people's attention. When in reality, if you can put out quality content with the goal of helping someone, not to try to put the eyeballs on you, but to put the empowerment in them, over time, good things will happen. I think your content will continue to grow and your brand will grow because you're approaching it the right way. You're not trying to say, look at me, look at me. Mm -hmm give me the more follows, give me the more likes. You're saying, Hey, how can I help someone else? And in turn, in turn, you know, sort of like karma, I think good things will happen to to good people.
0: Yeah. I love that because I think, and obviously that's not like the topic of discussion is social media or anything, but if yeah. you look at it, you know, even with your book, you're, you know, rebuilding Milo, like that's something you're selling as a product. But if you create something that goes viral and you get thousands of people that just discover you, their first inclination isn't go buy his book immediately. It's let me consume his content for the next three months and get value. So I think when people lose that, what you're saying, it it shoots themselves in the foot because it's the months of value every day that maybe don't get as much viral attention as the initial post that brought them there. But when you Mm -hmm. keep giving value over and over again, eventually they'll buy anything, you know, like that you sell because they love your product. They believe in your brand. They support that brand. Um, so I think that's great, man. I think that's huge. Obviously I want to steer us back to to squatting and and all that kind of stuff. Um, being a physical therapist, uh, two questions on that. Mm-hmm. Number one, why squat? Like, did you just say, like, Squat University is a cool name? Or were, were mm-hmm. you, like, obsessed with the squat specifically? Was that the thing that you really wanted to grab onto? And then to, to follow up that, is is there something within that that you didn't like? We, you kind of mentioned it a little bit. You didn't like within the physical therapy world. Like, we breezed past that, but I want people to be able to hear that because I remember my dad had a complete hip surgery or replacement on both sides. And uh, he just kind of ran by his like, here's what my physical therapist is doing with me. And I remember just looking at him like, dad, you have like an intern giving you a TheraBand and just telling you to do like fucking lateral walks. And this is just, I was like, let me tell you to go somewhere else. Um, The guy that's on the other end of this, does the producing for the pocket stuff. He's just had knee surgery. Same thing. I was like, go to this PT because he is actually really, really good and in the trenches with this kind of strength condition stuff. So I respect it, but a lot of people don't know where to. To find that, so um, if you yeah. can follow up the squat question with anything that you can tell listeners to look for, that would be huge.
1: Yeah, for sure. So uh, let's talk on the, the first one. Why, why Squat University? That's a big question a lot of people have. You know, it it really all stems back to this situation I found myself in time and time again as a young physical therapist when people would come to me for any type of injury, not post operatively, but directly after some sort of acute injury that would pop up. You know, ankle pain, knee pain, hip pain, backs hurting. As a part of the evaluation, the first thing they do when they come to me, it is my goal to try to figure out why did this injury happen? You know, what do I need to do for my treatment to help fix them? I have to first uncover what do I think the cause is. And in doing so, I often would ask people and still do to this day, take your shoes off. I want to see just basic movement patterns. I want to see the quality of your movement. And I'm going to look at a couple of different things. But one of those is a squat. Let me see you squat. Put your foot, toes, you know, relatively straightforward. Let me see you squat down. Let me see a single leg squat because I think every single person should be able to perform a single leg squat. And in doing so, time and time again, it was like this deja vu-like scenario. I was seeing people unable to perform a good quality looking squat. And I'm talking, I'm seeing athletes who are, you know, young and in you know, sort of your eighth grade, middle school, soccer, football, baseball, I'm seeing high school athletes. I'm seeing college athletes. I'm seeing professional athletes. So I'm seeing the entire spectrum of the athletic realm. And I'm seeing people um, on all different levels of athletic abilities, but many who are extremely bigger, faster, and stronger, you know, the way in which we approach athletics today, yet they could not perform the basic movement quality of a good looking squat and it sort of dawned on me like I mentioned that we have conceptually rearranged our athletic priorities to think that first and foremost the squat is an exercise not a movement Mm. however if you go anywhere else in the world besides our first world countries right you see people sitting in a deep squat often just as a resting position as a a position to cook food you know the co-author of both my books Kevin Santana his parents are originally from Laos And he would tell me that his mother would often sit in a deep squat to prepare dinner. But this is sort of lost on our generation or just our society in that we only think of the squat as something we do in the gym. I mean, anyone listening to this podcast, think to yourself, how often do you sit in a deep squat in the bottom of the squat? For most people, the only time they ever get into that position is when they're in the gym. And I think this is a fundamental problem. Because the squat is a movement before it's an exercise. It's one of those fundamental movement patterns that we learn as children. You learn to crawl, you learn to squat to stand up, and then you learn to walk and run. So it's a movement that we learn and we have the apparent ability to do so when you are very young, yet we lose it in many cultures as you grow up. You stop squatting, you just bend over to pick anything off the ground. And I think because of that, we have set ourselves up for having weak links that breed problems when it comes to performance and also increases risk of injury because we're not moving well before we start moving big weights. So that's really where Squat University came from is it was this idea that the squat is one of those fundamental human movements that we have inherently thought about as only an exercise we have downplayed its importance. And when you can rearrange its importance in your life and you learn to move well first, and again, this is learning how to improve ankle mobility, how to improve core and pelvic control, how to make sure your hip is coordinating well with you know your low back whenever you're moving. All of these things are moving well first. Then you add load. Then you improve your back squat, your front squat, your ability to improve your capacity. So many other things within your life Start working well. You start having less achy hips. You start having less low back pain. You start improving your power. Your back squat gets better. Your power clean gets better. It's it's the building block, on top of which I think so many people have this missing link right now. So that's really where Squat University came out of. Um, the second question you asked is, well, as far as the physical therapy realm, mm-hmm. most people who are in the physical therapy realm who work on strength athletes. And again, this is weightlifters, powerlifters, crossfitters, or just people who are very fitness minded and love lifting weights. Most physical therapists do not lift themselves. And when I mean lift, I mean, they don't push their bodies to the max. They don't know what it feels like to do a 10 rep max squat. They don't know what it feels like to do a five second pause deadlift at the knee. They've never pushed themselves hard, yet they think that they know how to then transition that therapy, that rehab, back to performance. And there's this gaping hole within our recovery process because of it. For example, I would not attempt to rehab a ballerina. I don't know anything about dance. You know, in the same way, there's so many people that don't understand the gym yet think that they understand movements within the gym because they go and they do soul cycle or they maybe do some like booty boot camps and stuff like that. They know what they're, you know, they know that they can get into the gym, but they don't know the struggle. They don't know the discomfort of pushing their bodies in the gym. And you're seeing some more of that nowadays. You're seeing some more people that were weightlifters and powerlifters and crossfitters first and then they got into their physical therapy profession. And the reason I think this is so helpful is because on the span of uh, rehabilitation, there is the very acute phase, and then there's this gray area, and then there's, we're back to performance. And it doesn't take an extremely skilled therapist to be able to have good uh, outcomes within the acute phase. Our goal is to decrease pain, improve range of motion, kickstart stability, We're using a lot of TheraBand things. We're using a lot of light weights. We're doing different modalities, things like that. That's sort of general. But then past that, there's so much that goes into rebuilding the body in order to handle performance in the gym. And I think there's that that's where that gray area was, and that's sort of where I try to tackle and go into. So I see so many athletes that have gone to other physical therapists. For example, like you mentioned, like after surgery. And after the first couple of weeks, they're like, yeah, I didn't do any, I didn't touch any weights. Most physical therapy clinics in the United States do not have a weight in the clinic over 30 pounds. Most do not have a barbell at all. And these aren't things that are just like performance. A barbell is not just something there to help you get a bigger back squat and to, you know, so that you can improve your performance for football. It is something that helps build capacity for movement, for life. Same with kettlebells. You should have kettlebells way over 50 pounds within clinic because it is something that helps you improve your capacity to lift a box in your garage. Yet so many clinics are just underprepared. So many clinicians are underprepared in order to take those uh, patients to the next level. So that's sort of where I've tried to craft my niche to be able to teach people, teach even other clinicians, hey, You know, these are things that you need to know in order to help someone not only get out of pain, but get back to doing, uh, moving bigger weights in the gym. And again, most people, when they think about the gym and the stuff that I do, yes, I talk to a lot of CrossFitters, powerlifters, weightlifters, going to the gym and back squatting should not be something that we think of as only something that athletes do. Your grandma should be in the gym back squatting. And that shouldn't be like a mind blowing thing to say. That's something that allows people to build capacity for life. If you think about it like this, if we have two different people, person A, person B, person A doesn't go to the gym at all. Maybe they go hiking, they do some gardening, they go biking and stuff like that. Person B stays in the gym and they can back squat, say even 225. And let's say both people are 60 years old. So they're getting older. Who do you think is going to have more capacity to walk up and down stairs to pick their grandkids up, to go outside to get the mail or picks a box, box off the ground and put it on a high shelf at 75 or 80? Clearly the person who has been pushing their body to build capacity within the gym. So when I talk about a lot of this stuff, I don't think it's just something that pertains to being an athlete, but it's something that is human in nature. And I think the physical therapy profession has been lacking in that for such a long time. Again, we only like to use yellow TheraBands and little tiny weights, but eventually there has to come a time where we push uh, for more uh, load so that we can transition someone into doing things that they should be doing for the rest of their life. I remember I was teaching at a uh, a state conference years ago. I was doing a, a presentation and I was in a room full of physical therapists. And I asked the simple question, Who here knows the difference between a high bar and a low bar back squat? And I think maybe six people out of close to 100 raised their hand. And that's a problem. That isn't something that should just be powerlifting specific. That's, again, that's gym etiquette 101, understanding the difference in techniques uh, with bar placement. And I think that's something that uh, the more we put education into teaching people about these things, uh, we should see changes uh, long-term that's just going to benefit everyone.
0: I love that, man. I think uh, I've said this multiple times in different realms, but it applies here too. To me, that's what evidence-based really should mean. It's it's understanding and taking the science, but also using experience, you know, and I think that helps so much in your realm because if we're only focused on textbook and studies and we're not applying things, it's hard for us to see it at work and see how things evolve because, I mean, this is obviously a problem in the with the medical system and the doctors and everything. But yeah. I've had conversations with the general physicians where I'm like, man, I think I know more than you on this topic. And that's not, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> like, I'm not a doctor, uh, yeah. you know, but one of the things you said, you mentioned earlier, uh, rang a bell with, I remember my first day in class, was a, was, the class was called functional movement, I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. he had a picture of a baby on the screen. I've told this story on the podcast multiple times, but you mentioned the squad and he had him, uh, it was about, crawling in quadruped pattern and, and stuff like that. But I think it's, it's one of those things that if you really just look back and just realize how much movement you lose, and I'm even guilty of this, you know, I've had two knee surgeries, so I finally actually move better now than I ever have. But it took me two knee surgeries, tearing my meniscus and the ACL both twice to actually get to this place, you know. Um, and I think that's, that's a big issue. So one of the questions I had pertaining to this was in that recovery process, post-surgery, going into movement, all that stuff, I believe it was you I heard talk about actually getting back to movement quicker rather than going with the old school like rice principle, rest, ice, compression, Mm. elevate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wanted you to bring that up on here because I think that's something that that's again, that's been a principle forever. And I think people just keep using it because that's how it is and how it was and how it will always be. But. I remember you saying this and I remember going to physical therapy this last time and he had me doing like bicycle movements on the couch, just upside down, just so I can move my knee yeah. doing blood flow restriction work at his gym. And again, he had trap bars, barbell, everything there. So very similar to what you're talking yeah, yeah. about, which is why I sought him out. Um, but can you go over that, the, the rice principle and why that might not be the best route if, if I'm correct. And no, you're very said.
1: correct. You're very correct. So where did this all come from? The rice protocol actually stemmed from a book called The Sports Medicine Book. I believe it was 1973 by Dr. Gabe Merkin. And he basically coined the term because he believed that ice was a fundamental principle within promoting the healing process. Uh, Since then, we've done a lot of research and we have actually found the opposite in that ice actually delays the healing process, um, which is why Dr. Gabe Merkin, again, the man who coined the rice term, came out in 2013 and recanted his statement and said, I was wrong. Mm -hmm. Ice actually slows and delays the healing process. And basically movement is medicine. Um, So the idea is basically whenever you have an injury, there's a lot of different processes that are happening. You have inflammation that is occurring in order to get uh, very specific cells within your body that come to the area to help clean it up. Uh, Think about like if there was a car accident on the highway, You would have a bunch of emergency vehicles that would come rushing to the accident to help clean it up and help everyone that's there. That's similar to the type of white blood cells called macrophages that come to this area. Well, when you ice, you basically set up roadblocks on the highway. So you can't get the healing properties to the area. It slows everything down. Well, then you have a little bit of swelling that comes naturally into the injured area. Well, swelling uh, if you watch TV is always a bad, thing. swelling is not a good or a bad thing. Swelling is just an after effect of the inflammation rushing to the area. Naturally, the capillaries open up. You get a little bit of fluid that rushes out of the capillaries into the, uh, extracellular matrix. We call it, uh, that increases the swelling, the volume of that area. Now, here's the interesting thing is that in your body, there are two different pathways. There's the circulatory system that brings blood, uh, to and from your limbs. And that runs off the generator of your heart, which is constantly pumping. Swelling moves off a different highway called the lymphatic system. And the interesting thing is that lymphatic system does not have its own pump. doesn't have a generator like the heart. The lymphatic system only works off movement. So the only way to evacuate swelling is to move. You have to have muscle contraction in order to move swelling out of the injured area. So swelling is, got, is not good or bad. It's just an after effect of the inflammation rushing to the area that brings the, the fluid out of the capillaries and into that extracellular matrix. So the only way to get swelling out is to move. So when you put an ice pack on top of something, everything just stops. You're not moving. You're not allowing the good cells to get to the injured area to clean it up. And you're not allowing anything to get out of the injured area. But when you move, like you said, when you were kicking your legs, or if you're doing ankle pumps after an ankle sprain, or if you even put like an NMES device, like a TENS device on your quad and make the muscles jump, that's creating muscle contraction that's pumping, swelling out of the injury area. So basically we can be more optimal than icing with our recovery from injury by having proper movement. Now, again, the movement has to be graded so that it's not creating more pain, so, if you had an ACL tear, the last thing you want to do is go squat 400 pounds the next day, right? Clearly, we want to be smart about it, but proper movement that can be done relatively pain free can actually kickstart and optimize the healing process much more than just ice alone. Now, obviously, we have to have context. If someone is raving in pain and flailing on the ground and they're 10 out of 10 pain, sure, throw a bag of ice on it. It's not that big of a deal. But What we're talking about is how do I optimize things? We think about this in every other aspect of our life. How do I optimize nutrition? We understand that there's better foods for us to eat than others. How do I optimize sleep? We understand I probably shouldn't be scrolling on TikTok till three in the morning if I want to sleep well. How do I optimize my workouts? I should probably have some sort of form of periodization so that I'm not maxing out every single day. Eventually I'm going to hit a plateau. And when it comes down to optimizing injury rehab, We wanna basically say, ditch the ice, what can I do to move to get blood flow to the area and pull swelling and damaged tissue away from the injury area? How can I spark the healing process and be the most optimal as possible? And there's no way after looking at the available evidence that ice is an optimal form of recovery for most people.
0: Hey, guys, I want to take a quick second to shout out the sponsor of this podcast, which is myself. It's my own app, The Tailored Trainer, which is the simple solution to actually looking like you lift. My goal with The Tailored Trainer was to do just that. I had countless amount of people coming into our coaching to get nutrition guidance from us. And they needed training help as well. And I was tired of hearing people tell me, I don't look like I lift. I'm in the gym hours every week. I'm training hard. I'm pushing myself. I'm sweating my ass off, but I don't look like I work out. What is the deal? And the deal is simple. There isn't a periodized plan backing up the effort they're putting in the gym. They don't have progressive overload methods and metrics and measurements inside their programming that are going to guide them to the result they're after. which is why I wanted to create an app that did that for you. Not only, does it have actually systemized programs that are effective for your goal, for your schedule, for your body type, and for your experience because there are tons of programs in there. That's why it's called the tailored trainer because you can literally tailor your training to your lifestyle and your schedule and your experience level, but it's also going to have the software and the metrics inside to make sure that it's progressive and periodized without you even realizing it. You don't have to do anything, and it is programmed properly to get you to progress, Which is why I always tell people, stop aimlessly working out using influencers, Instagram posts and YouTube videos as your plan. Start actually tailoring the training process to you. And you can do that by downloading this app. It's less than $1 a day. And you can head over to tailoredtrainer.net to read more about it, see screenshots of the app live itself, see reviews from some of the people using it, and see a personal letter from myself as to why I created this app in the first place. So once again, head over to tailoredtrainer.net. Now, let's get back into the podcast. That's great, man. I think stuff like this is so important for people to hear because, I mean, number one, that goes against the grain of what has been told, so that's obvious. But even stuff like when you were talking about movement, I think of... Somebody sprains their ankle in basketball and they throw an ankle brace on it. And then next thing you know, they just keep wearing that ankle brace. And it's like, man, oh. now you're just limiting that movement that could actually improve not only the recovery of your, your injury, but actually get you back to moving in full ranges of motion for your sport and everything too, which is I can't is tell you the
1: amount of people that I see later on in life that have limited ankle mobility on one side because they sprained it so many times and just threw a brace on it. Mm-hmm. Because what happens is you develop scar tissue, you develop you know a stiffening of that joint all because of the way you approach the injury.
0: Yeah. So this is, this is related to a topic I wanted to bring up, and I don't know if further research has been done because this isn't like my specific niche um, mm-hmm. since I learned this, but I believe it was from Gray Cook who originally made this up, um, the mobility-stability continuum. And it was kind of this idea where like your ankles are mobile, your knees are stable, your hips are mobile, lumbar is stable, and it kind of stacks, right? And the reason I'm asking this is because you talk about somebody who has an ankle injury. Later on in life, they have a shoulder issue are they linked because of this continuum, you know, because this imbalance creates a poor movement pattern, which creates, creates a dysfunction in the gym. And then it just kind of ends up being this thing where now you're just like a, a walking dysfunction, all these other joints because of one little thing that happened on your ankle. And the cool thing about this that I learned from that really helped me was somebody's knee hurts. And they're like, what do I do about this knee? And I'm like, well, let's look at your hips and ankles to fix your knee. And that was always kind of weird for them, but it was like, Hey, let's look above and below because if your stable knee is causing pain, it might be, Trying to be mobile because you're lacking mobility in your hips and ankles, right? And uh, again, I don't know if this is still exactly how you coach or if it's still active, but I'd love for you to break that down or how you use it. And and so the listeners can take that in because I think that was something really cool for me to learn that taught me a lot.
1: Yeah. So it, it's called the joint by joint approach. And it was something that was coined by Gray Cook and Mike Boyle, strength mm-hmm. conditioning coach. Um, and I think originally it came out in uh, Gray's book, Body and Balance, way back in the day. And then it's also obviously the focal point of his book, Movement, which also sort of uh, gave the FMS and SFMA testing that he also does. Um, but the idea is basically it's a simplistic way to understand the body and how every single joint Within your body has a role to play, but also how it connects and affects other joints within the body. Um, So, for example, the foot is one of the most mobile complexes in the entire body. There's over 27 bones, over 100 ligaments, tendons, and muscles that run down there. It's capable of a lot of different movements. However, whenever you are moving, whether you're walking and you hit the ground, or you're squatting, or you're jumping and you're landing on the ground, we want the foot to remain stable. It basically is the fundamental foundation for your house. On top of that comes the ankle. Now the ankle is prone to stiffness, but yet if we want great movement, we need it to be mobile. On top of that becomes the knee. Very, very mobile joint, but yet if we want a good quality squat, we need it to be stable. We want the knee to not waver side to side and collapse in. We see a lot of problems and instability when the knee uh, drops in, right? That's how we get the valgus collapse, which tears an ACL. Um, And on up the rest of the body, we see mobile joints stacked on top of stable platforms. So that's a way to look at the body and systematically break it down. Now, the idea of why that's important to understand is because if we see a problem somewhere in the body, instantly our goal is to look at the joints above and below and see how those joints are functioning. So for example, if I have someone that's squatting and whose knees cave in, that would be an instability of the knee. I need to look at two different places. I need to look at the ankle and I need to look at the hip. I know the ankle needs to be mobile. If I am lacking ankle mobility, the knee will cave in sometimes. And this has been shown uh, multiple times in research that limited end range dorsiflexion can be a factor in uh, valgus knee collapse. Same thing with the hip. Now the hip's an interesting one because it also needs stability and mobility. It's one of those two-part ones. Um, But we can look at things like uh, low back pain in that there's a number of times that uh, low back pain has been linked to problems in hip mobility in the research. And I will say just from my own personal experience being a clinician for over a decade, there's rarely someone that comes into me with low back pain, because of instability within the low back, that does not also have a hip mobility issue. That is not apparent to the problem or to the, the treating doctor at first who maybe referred them to me, is that they're only looking at the site. So the idea is that as strength and conditioning coaches, as personal trainers, as medical practitioners and rehab practitioners, we often love to look at the problem. I look at the side of dysfunction with movement. I look at the knee cave. I look at the problem. I see knee pain. I don't look outside. And it's very important to really get a full fix of whatever that is, whether it's an injury or just a movement problem, to really take a step back and not look at the body through a microscope, but understand the complexity and the interconnectivity of the body and how something that may not seem like a problem could have a great impact on something somewhere else within the body that it's connected to. And again, this has been shown many times in research at many different parts of the body. We've seen, you know, excessive pronation of the foot. So with the foot collapsing over has been linked to problems in knee stability, in knee pain. People who have IT band syndrome, you know, things like that, patel femoral pain syndrome. We've seen, like I mentioned before, back pain being linked many times in research to problems in hip mobility. We see issues in you know, baseball where uh, a number of people could develop elbow issues, but it could be linked to problems all the way up at the shoulder, could be linked to problems all the way down at maybe their plant leg not having enough hip internal rotation. So that whenever they go through their cocking phase and the throwing phase, if they are not allowed to uh, move optimally, on one hip, it creates this compensation up the rest of the chain. And just like a whip action, we only look at the crack. We don't see who's holding the whip. Mm-hmm. So there's many, many situations in research that have shown this connection. But again, the difficult thing about research is that it's very hard to create, uh, a very, uh, general study. That is something that looks at a ton of individuals if that makes sense. It's very difficult to be uh, very intricate with some of these things. For example, I could take a hundred people with low back pain and they could all have a hundred different reasons for developing that low back pain. So the the common word that we hear within research pertaining to low back pain is non-specific low back pain. And that's the biggest junk term in the world because it means I don't know what's wrong with your back. You just have back pain. No one would ever say that about your knee. You try to figure it out. and be femoral pain, IT band syndrome, placos- you know, there's many different reasons we would think someone has knee pain. So why do we say not specific low back pain? But when you can perform a good evaluation, you can find with very good specificity the specific nature of anyone's or many people's injury, we'll say. It just requires a good evaluation Yeah. for to sort of figure out what different parts are actually a cause or an after effect, or maybe not related at all. There's plenty of times where you can find an asymmetry somewhere else in the body. And it may not be a causing factor, but a good evaluation and good clinical skills. Again, that comes with experience, not something you find in the research. And you mix that with the research, that's where you find the best uh, overall long-term changes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I heard a quote from somebody. Uh, it was Uh, research, and he is a researcher, and he said, in research, we look at averages. In my coaching, I look at individuals. And I think that's a good point. You know, there's a lot that we can take for research. But with an evaluation, like you're saying, you're really looking at an individual. And the uh, joint by joint approach really kind of lays that out because it's hard to probably see that on a a big scale. But I remember learning from, uh, you're probably familiar with Eric Cressy over the years, and I did like a shoulder workshop with him years ago. And he would have so many pictures of Pictures. and for people listening he primarily just he's like the baseball guy but he would take videos or pictures of a pitcher in like the biggest external rotation just crazy positions and then like actually be able to say like like you said oh this is starting on his plant foot and this is why so obviously part of me wants to go down the rabbit hole of, of how you do this but we could spend two hours on a podcast talking about that alone. So I, I want to talk about something that might be more applicable to the people listening um, because it can help identify what this might be for you in, in uh, a low back scenario, because that's really, really common in lifters. Um, but that's the McGill big three. And the reason I is said is because number one, people swear by it. And I've mm-hmm. seen and read about uh, powerlifting athletes, strongman athletes using this and it fixing their like spinal issues. And I'm just like, but it's so simple, like it, I just don't get it. Right. Um, and I also have heard—I uh, think it was actually Stuart McGill, if not you um, or somebody else—who is really affiliated with him and, and pushes this, talking about being uh, extension intolerant, rotation intolerant, reflection intolerant. I think it was. Mm-hmm. And and to me, that that's always fascinating because for a long time, people are like neutral spine, don't move it, can't extend, can't flex. But then it's like when you go through some of these movements, you well, you are flexing, you're rounding, you're trying to move it a little bit. So I guess my question is really just why is the big three? So what is it for people listening? And then why is it so helpful and so
1: simple? Definitely. So let's, let's first describe what is the big three. The McGill big three is a combination of three core stability exercises, the modified curl, the side plank, and the bird dog. The idea Is they are very low load activities, meaning that most people, even the most people who are in back pain, who have a very flared up back, can often still perform them because they don't place a lot of load that could create more symptoms for certain people. So they're a combination of three core stability exercises that aim to instill stiffness within the spine. Now, when we look at core exercises, we can sort of break them up into two different groups. We have dynamic movements, and we have isometric stability drills. Dynamic movements are what most people think of, of core exercises. They are your Russian twists, your sit-ups, your back extensions, you know, different things like that. Basically, they move the spine through a range of motion. Now, I don't want people to get the idea that like moving the spine through motion is a bad thing. Uh, we have to have context if we're talking about that and that's a whole other discussion. But the other side of things was the isometric stability drills. What those do is attempt to stiffen the spine. They attempt to limit motion while the muscles just contract. And the reason that's so different is because many people who are having issues with the back often have instabilities within the back. Many people do. So the McGill Beak 3 is a way of reinstilling optimal and sufficient stability for the, for the spine. That's the reason why it was originally developed. When you perform dynamic movements like crunches or Russian twists, yes, you improve strength. But just because someone is strong does not mean they necessarily have good control of that strength and can limit excessive motion. So that's the difference between strength and stability. stability. Or strength is the ability to move a joint through a range of motion, to contract a muscle eccentric, concentric. Stability is the ability to limit excessive or unwanted motion. So many people who develop back injuries do so because they are in part having problems in stability and they're having excessive motions that they cannot control or excessive loads and or the combination of the two that eventually leads to a very specific injury. Now, there's a lot that goes into back rehab. And I think the problem a lot of people get is they think just that McGill's work boils down to the McGill Big Three, which is it's literally like the tiniest slice of the pie. There's so much that goes into it. But one part of many people's back rehab is to slowly reinstill proper core stability. And that's where these come in. So the first one is a modified curl up. So rather than do a crunch where you are moving the spine into more flexion, the idea is that you are stiffening, you're contracting your anterior core. And then you just lift your head slightly, but no spinal movement occurs. So you're working the front side of your core, but you're not bending it. The side plank is obviously going to work your lateral obliques, your QL, but you're not going to side bend your spine. You're just stiffening. The bird dog is excellent at working your erectors, obviously your anterior core as well, but it's great at working the back side of your core but also in a way that's low load and the goal is to not move the spine. And a lot of people that get done with the McGill big three, they feel almost this stiffness, this sheet of armor across their core. And it can be an excellent way for many people who have back pain to sort of, you know, give themselves a little bit of uh, insurance that the way that they're moving, they're going to be moving more about their hips and less about their back. And uh, for those who are doing this as a warm up for performance, I do the McGill big three before every single one of my workouts. And it doesn't take a lot of time. And for anyone listening that wants to learn about it, just search McGill big three squat university on YouTube and you'll see my video on it. But there's plenty of athletes that I have who will use this as a warm up as a way to prime their core before they start loading their body. So it sort of has both ways uh, to go about it. Now you mentioned movements, of the spine, the idea is that we shouldn't ever fear movement. You know, the, the body in the spine specifically is designed to move. You should be able to bend over to touch your toes, expand your spine to, you know, grab something up tall, you know, twist side to side. You won't be able to swing a golf club very well if you can't move your spine. You won't be able to dance well or do so many movements if you think about stiffening your core and not moving it. However, we have to understand context. And within the gym, many of the movements that we perform require you to stiffen the core and limit spinal movement while motion takes place about the hips or the extremities. And the reason that's so important is twofold. First and foremost, we uh, maintain the spine in a rigid structure. That's going to help decrease injury risk. There's plenty of research that shows that movement of the spine under load over time is the mechanism that creates a number of injuries. That's the mechanism that creates disc bulges. That's the mechanism that creates End plate fractures, they're spondies, and it's over time under load with movement. So if we limit spinal movement, and stiffen, and then move more about the hips, you're able to mitigate a lot of injury risk. Now, second is understanding that a stable core will also enhance your performance. Dr. Stuart McGill would always say uh, proximal stability enhances distal athleticism. And there's research that'll show that the more someone stiffens their core first before then moving their arms and legs they're actually able to unleash a little bit more power out of their extremities so from a performance standpoint it makes sense to stiffen that core what happens is that if you can envision someone doing a deadlift and they set their back well but then as soon as they start to lift their back rounds and rounds and rounds so it's moving into more and more flexion that person is bleeding energy we would call that an energy leak so rather than have their back stiffening into a neutral, or even if it's a slight curve, which we do see some power lifters perform, you can't you know, pull a, an atlas stone off the ground if you're a strongman with a neutral spine, but it's stiffened. Mm. And when you can stiffen the spine in whatever range it's in, it then allows you to enhance the amount of power that you can create in your arms and or legs, depending on the movement. But the second that spine starts moving excessively, that's when you start seeing a lot of bleeding and inefficiencies in your movement, uh, in your lift. Um, Now, you'll always get those people that will, again, when we talk about research versus clinical uh, application, you'll get those people that have never really done a lot of excessive lifting, that haven't really coached it before, that don't have gym wisdom, we'll say. And they'll say, well, I read this article and it showed that the spine was moving 18 degrees in a squat. Well, sure, it may be moving a tiny bit during a squat or a deadlift, but there's 170 degrees of motion occurring at the hips. So the large majority of movement is taking place at the hips. We're trying to limit motion. We're trying to stiffen. Of course, small motions will occur. No one is, is holding their spine in a complete rigid position. There's a ton of joints in that area. Small motions do occur, but it's the intention. It's the context it's how you approach things, And when you get down to the bar, and you stiffen your spine, you wedge yourself against the bar, you create a tremendous amount of tension in your core, you take that big breath, you brace, and then you try to drive with your legs, you limit that motion moving from your spine, you see so much more power come out of your body. And longevity wise, you're going to keep your spine much safer. When this,
0: this might be an oversimplistic way of Thinking about it or question, um, I kind of think of it like anti movement instead of movement, right? Like even something as simple yeah. as a off press, it's it's the opposite of a Russian twist. You're not rotating, you're resisting rotation. But when I think of injury, whether you, it, we're in the gym or if I trip or if I get hit by a car, it's usually like locomotion or or ballistic motion being applied to me, and hopefully my body knows to respond by bracing, trunk stiffening, resisting to avoid injury so would you Mm -hmm. say as a blanket statement a lot of people they're training their core to look good but for people who want function and performance would you almost say some of these like anti-extension anti-rotation anti-flexion things like that are almost more
1: powerful for injury prevention day-to-day as well as performance i would say definitely now obviously we have to have context to understand like uh someone who's golfing or someone who's Mm -hmm. uh maybe a baseball player like there is core stability within a rotational plane of motion and things like that that do happen but i would still say the large majority of core stability should be built on the premise of limiting motion at the core while more movement takes place at the hips and or arms and again that goes back to the joint by joint concept of understanding that we want to stiffen the spine and move about the mobile hips and the mobile shoulders now when someone will hear that they will say well what about a wrestler or brazilian jiu-jitsu things like that obviously they move right they they can't keep their core stiff mm-hmm. well of course i would have them train to stiffen their core and perform isometric movements and then in the context of their sport then they 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 save basically the movement of the spine for the sport but the far majority of people would often benefit from more so from the stability aspect to enhance their function, to enhance their capacity, to limit the excessive motion, like you mentioned. And the interesting thing is that when you go about things the right way and you are training your body, not just with assistant work, but with regular exercises like a deadlift or a squat or a farmer's carry, understanding that those are core stability exercises as well if done with the right intention, your body will develop muscles in the core as a side effect. You know, you see a lot of these big weight lifters and powerlifters. they're not doing crunches all day long. You know, they're doing a very good job of performing their lifts and their accessory movements with great intention of creating stiffness. Obviously their nutrition's on point as well. And in doing so, they have developed a lot of muscle but it's as a side effect of approaching it that way. They're not training like bodybuilders. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a bodybuilder, fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that pursuit of training for aesthetics of trying to sculpt the body. But the pursuit of bodybuilding is very different from the pursuits of powerlifting, weightlifting, CrossFit. Mm -hmm. It's how you approach the body. Now, sure. you can mix and match the two, if that's what your goals are. But I'll say this, uh, if you want to be the best in one area, you know, you only have so much time throughout the day. If I only have 45 minutes to get in the gym, I'm usually putting a lot more of my emphasis into one particular area. So, um, I always get people all the time when I say, Hey, you know, a lot of weightlifters and powerlifters they're seeing abs as a side effect of approaching core stability by performing good quality lifts they're not doing a bunch of sit-ups, you know, save the, the ab work, specific dynamic work for the bodybuilders. Mm-hmm. And people will say, well, I want both. Well, fine. If you have, if you want both, go do both. But I'm saying, if you want to be a good power lifter, you want to be a good weightlifter, don't waste your time. Again, going back to, are we trying to optimize our training? We have to have contact. We have to understand our end result. Doing a bunch of sit-ups is a waste of time for a weightlifter.
0: Yeah, I mean, and and this is the last thing I'll say because I know we're running up on time, I would even go as far to say because we work with a lot of people who do want the aesthetic goal. I would even go as far to say is they skip that because that's not their focus, but then they end up getting injured because they lack it in the gym, and you you end up back at that place anyway. So it's almost like prehab versus rehab, right? Like just do it a little bit at least, so you don't have to come back. And I mean, like me, I after my second surgery on my knee, I was like, all right, let me take this serious now because you know my pursuit was aesthetic, so I ignored a lot of it and. I I was hurt because of it, but, um, man, I could take this down so many different paths just because you have so much information. So I I appreciate your time though. I want to let you go, um, and, uh, let everybody know where they can find you on Instagram, YouTube, uh, where your books are available. I'll put all that in the show notes, but I want to be able to send people your way so they can learn from you.
1: I appreciate it. Well, first, thank you so much for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, anyone can find me, just Squat University, all across every single social media platform, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, uh, my podcast, Facebook. Every single place there's social media, there's probably Squat University.
0: Yeah, and I can't recommend enough, guys. I've learned a ton just from consuming this free content. So go check all that out. Um, And Aaron, once again, thank you for your time, man.
1: Thank you.